This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In contrast to Congress, there is some serious movement at state capitals on gun legislation right now. This week, we're talking about a few ideas here in Colorado. Our first guest today is a Columbine survivor who thinks the state can help prevent mass shootings. But he's not for more gun control. He wants to expand gun rights. Republican State Representative Patrick Neville is from Jefferson County and is the House Minority Leader. He's with us from the Capitol, and welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Every year since you were elected in 2014, you've introduced a bill to allow concealed carry on school grounds. Why do you think more access to guns, including in schools, is the right way to prevent the kinds of atrocities we saw in Florida? Right. So I think the current policy that we have, and I've felt this way for quite a long time as a former Columbine student, just invites these heinous acts where actually I think the criminals look for these locations because they know they're going to go unopposed. So as you see it, schools are sitting ducks, and yet we know that there are school resource officers, for instance, who are armed. Let's be clear that there are people with guns on schools throughout Colorado even as we speak, correct? There are in some locations, but there's a lot of problems and issues with the way the law is written now that really restricts the flexibility of the districts to do what they need to do. Your bill was quashed by Democrats. I imagine you'll bring it back for a fifth time next year. And let's do clarify what you'd like to see happen. This is not a requirement that every teacher carry a gun. What does it mean to say that you want to give districts more flexibility? Right. Some school districts might want to add training or might want to restrict it through terms of employment. Um, but it would no longer be the, the criminal offense that it is right now. But the districts, through their own policies and procedures, could add training before allowing their employees to, just like any other private company does now, or quite frankly, our private schools are doing right now. I read about a, a district in El Paso County, for instance, that is interested in training teachers to carry, and I think they have to designate them as special security officers. So there's some flexibility in the law for this right now, correct? And and you're just hoping to expand that? Yeah, there's a slight bit of flexibility now, but there's problems when you actually have to change a contract. There's some costs involved as well. So I'm looking like right now, and I've got a, there's a private school in my district, actually, who's already doing this. And since they're a private school, they're not bound by the same restrictions. What they've actually done is brought in former Navy SEALs to actually come in and do some very advanced training with uh, some of their, the teachers who are willing and able to do this. And yet one thing we know about guns is that uh, their mere presence can increase the likelihood that those around that gun are injured or killed by it, uh, whether by accident or by suicide. I think of that especially with with kids, suicide. To add to the, the equation there in Florida, a good guy with a gun, you know, did nothing to help stop the active shooter. Are you making schools more dangerous by putting more guns on campus? No, absolutely not. Actually, Utah's had this for over, I think, over 10 years, and we haven't seen many issues. There was one small incident with negligent discharge in a bathroom where no one was hurt, thank goodness. But that's been the only issue. Uh, Meanwhile, it's sent a strong deterrent, and I don't think we've seen any mass shootings in our schools in Utah because the criminals know that they're not going to go in there unopposed. And and that's the biggest thing I think this bill is going to accomplish is it'll be a deterrent more than anything that folks are going to stop targeting our, our young kids in schools. That's interesting. You say it's a deterrent. So it's, in a way, being able to say, people in this school may be armed. Uh, Don't even try it. Yeah. And the other thing, too, when we talk about concealed carry, too, it actually gives a big advantage. So the example you gave in Florida, it's one thing to actually, you know, be a uniformed officer in a school. I know in my school in Columbine, they waited till the, the uniformed officer was 
away at lunch, but they knew who that person was and uh, kind of took precautions to to avoid him. Where if you have a group of teachers and you have no clue who's even one of those who are willing and able to concealed carrying, it gives them a real real advantage during such an attack. Yeah, tell me more about how your experience at Columbine led you to this view. Right. I mean, for me, I just remember the 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 days and weeks afterwards pretty vividly. I remember seeing my uh, longtime friend's father at the, the elementary school we rallied after, and he was frantically looking for his son and never did find his son and going to his house afterwards and seeing the pain in his eyes and seeing that everything they dealt with was just, I mean, absolutely awful. I remember even myself sitting in class afterwards and being asked to be broken up into groups and realizing the group that I had was no longer existent because one of the students uh, was killed and another student was still in the hospital. And for me, I just, I never want to experience that pain now with, with a father as kids in school. I never want to experience that pain that those fathers and other parents experienced and um, certainly don't want my kids to have to go through all the things that I went through. And I mean, I've even had experiences where folks who are now teaching my kids that I would be willing to do this and I'd be able and I'd go through training to do this um, and they support it. And I mean, that kind of gives me hope that maybe one day my kids will, will be protected as well. Was there anything specifically about, about that day at Columbine High that led you to either broadly your position on guns or this legislation in particular? It was a 15-year-old kid. It wasn't like I was really thinking that far ahead. But my opinions on this issue really solidified when I was sitting in college and I had actually gone through the training and obtained my own concealed carry permit at the time. That's when it really solidified in my mind that um, we needed to do something to allow good people who've gone through the background checks, they've gone through the fingerprinting, they've gone through the training to actually allow them to be able to defend themselves and our other students. And yet teachers groups around the country have said that bringing more guns into schools isn't the answer. Uh, yes, there are some individual teachers who will disagree, but more often we've heard no thanks. Uh, same thing we're hearing from the students in Florida. And so with all due respect, why do you think you know better than the people who are in schools every day saying they don't want this? Well, I think you're lumping them all into a large category, and there's obviously politics involved in there. A lot of these teacher organizations are definitely affiliated with a lot of these uh, different Democrat groups. And But I, I will say this. I've had thousands and thousands of emails and many of them from teachers who would be willing to do this. Even more support from parents and, and other folks, too. And I think we need to also be concerned about our, our parents and what, what they want and, and, and a bunch of other students as well. So, I mean, there's no one magic group that speaks for everyone. And I, I, there's so many different groups out there, too, that have reached out to me that said, We'll provide additional training for free. You talk about the politics of this and how you see, for instance, teachers' unions weighing in. Want to talk about your, your own politics. Your family is closely tied with the advocacy group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. Uh, your first campaign got a $2,000 donation from that group. Uh, they're very quick to react to any sniff of gun control efforts. Uh, I know you've heard the criticism before that you are doing what Rocky Mountain Gun Owners wants at the Capitol. What do you say to that? I mean, it's totally bogus. I remember supporting this policy when I was a college student. And if there was one place that I really wanted to be protected, it was sitting in a classroom. But at the time, that was even our college campuses were a gun-free zone. So some of these other groups have worked to repeal that, and it's something that I've believed long before I ever decided to run for office. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. 
And this is a conversation with Republican State Representative Patrick Neville of Jefferson County. He is a survivor of the shooting at Columbine High School. And for many years now at the legislature, he has introduced legislation, albeit unsuccessful, to give districts more flexibility to arm their staffs. That could include teachers. And I want to talk about some of the ins and outs of what that might look like. It's interesting that some of the other survivors from Columbine or parents who lost their kids have become very vocal advocates for more gun control. Uh, that includes Tom Mauser, whose son you knew in school. He has testified against your bills to allow more guns in schools. And he says that even if you put aside the philosophical opposition to the idea, he just has like a lot of practical concerns. If they draw their weapons and police arrive, the police don't know who the good guys are. Another major issue here is, can you really provide enough training to these teachers to handle the the many different kinds of situations they could be in so that they don't make things worse? There's the question of, could a teacher be sued who was armed for failing to act, or maybe not so much sued, but chastised because they didn't arm themselves to protect students? A lot to unpack there. I guess, first off, this idea that If you've got a teacher or some other school staffer with a gun, doesn't it make it imminently more difficult for law enforcement to distinguish who's doing the shooting? Who's the the bad guy? Who's the good guy? No, it doesn't. There's actually had a stack of papers when I was presenting this bill um, that was probably about over 30 instances where people with concealed carry um, actually prevented mass shootings. And there was actually one case in particular where two people who were concealed and carrying acted on a a mass shooter, and and those two, even amongst themselves, didn't start shooting each other. Usually these are over in a matter of of seconds, if not minutes, and anyone who uh, has concealed carry knows that after, you know, the threat is gone, you holster it, and usually police come in. We just haven't seen these kind of Wild West scenarios that the the people who are anti-gun always paint. We just haven't seen them. Would you hope that schools would institute more than the basic concealed carry training? if they indeed arm teachers? Yes, I would, and I think most schools would. Um, I just don't want to mandate a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all, because each school is exactly, I mean, it's totally different, so I'd rather leave that up to them. You mentioned earlier that there had been offers for free training to school staff, assuming that that's not necessarily going to be the case everywhere. Schools in Colorado are already pinching pennies. Yeah, they are, and that's why there is no requirement, and this just gives them more flexibility. Um, quite frankly, too, it's it's not just it's not just teachers. It could be a janitor or even um, maybe someone who is a retired police officer that wants to come in and volunteer, or a retired veteran who wants to come in and volunteer. But these schools could actually work with those folks and develop good policies and and procedures and outcomes, and and they would give them that total flexibility. There's no requirement in the bill to make them do anything or make them spend any type of money. How do you picture this going down for a teacher? So it strikes me that a a teacher's first order of business is to protect the kids, to get them down, to get the door locked. In what order does the, the, the um, shooting of the suspect, the, of the assailant, happen? Right. So if you look at um, Jen Thompson came and spoke, and she was actually stuck in a classroom for, for hours and hours with uh, Mr. Sanders at Columbine. And I think that scenario is kind of what we're looking at here, the, the the shooters were trying to bust into the doors and using bombs and trying to shoot through the doors. So I think the first order of business for any teacher would be to actually protect their students and, and kind of gather them around like they do now in some of these drills. And then 
and lock the door, but if someone breaks through the door, then what? I mean, that's what that's what really freaks me out with my kids and hearing what the drills they go through and everything. If someone breaks through the door, then what? And that's where I think the teacher could actually engage, and that's where the teacher would have a huge advantage because the they would they would be trained on that one little specific area, and if that crazed lunatic comes walking through, then it would be actually relatively easy to take him out. And I would just rather give him that, that, that ability rather than just leave him totally unarmed and totally vulnerable. What about the possibility a teacher shoots an innocent student? It's a possibility, but we haven't seen it in the different concealed carry scenarios that played out. Like I said, there was about, I mean, there's been over 30. If There's probably even more out there, but we haven't seen it. There are two memes going around the internet right now that I, I can't get out of my head as we talk about arming teachers. Uh, and I'd, I'd just like to present them to you. One comes from an activist in Florida. If a gunman can walk onto a military base like Fort Hood with 100% of the populace highly trained in firearms use and still murder 13 people with a pistol, do you honestly think that 20% of teachers having a gun is going to stop the next killer who may have an AR-15? The other thing that I've seen is an image of uh, the late President Ronald Reagan surrounded by people with guns and yet was still shot. Are you overstating the abilities, the efficacy of people who are not full-time law enforcement officers? No, I'm not. I think they're good people that would be ready to protect our students. And the first meme that you bring up is in particular interesting because Fort Hood was a gun-free zone. The fact of the matter is I've been through the military. The military installations do not allow privately concealed carry on the military installations. They don't allow it. So all those people might have been highly trained, but they were themselves not allowed to protect themselves. And yes, there's there's times that people are still shot when they're surrounded by security. But guess what? They still surround themselves by strong security because it's still a great preventative measure and, and is a big deterrent. Patrick Neville, do you have any misgivings, any reservations, any concerns about having more guns in schools? You know, I don't. It's it, it's quite the opposite. I have more misgivings that we are just sending a message that we are not going to keep, do anything, take any real steps to stop these from continuing to happen because we continue this policy that just invites these folks to come in and do this. And we, we, we owe it better to our kids to, to change that and actually defend them. Representative, thank you for your time. Thank you. Patrick Neville is the House Minority Leader. He's a Republican from Jefferson County. Tomorrow, we'll talk about a proposal to let families stop a loved one from getting a gun. Plus, what happened when Democrats in Colorado aggressively pursued gun control in 2013. All right, after a break, good or bad idea to let cyclists roll through intersections if the coast is clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When cyclists come to a stop sign or red light, they have to stop. Wait till the light turns green. That may change. A bill advancing in the Colorado legislature would allow cyclists to do what's widely known as the Idaho stop. That is, rolling through these intersections if the coast is clear. Pete Van Heuven is with Bicycle Colorado, and she joins us. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Ryan. Thanks so much. We put a call out on Facebook for people's thoughts about this. Strong reactions in favor and against. 
uh, more of those in a moment. But first off, the Idaho stop got its name because the Idaho legislature voted in 1982 to let cyclists ride through stop signs and red lights when it's safe to do so. Why do you think it took Colorado 36 years to decide the Idaho stop or what you're calling the Colorado safety stop? Why it might be a good idea here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some would say that, uh, you know, we could certainly agree that uh, we're, we're overdue to take a look at uh, whether our traffic regulations really make sense uh, from a safety perspective for both people who bike and people who drive. Um, we think it's because there are more people bicycling. And we've really seen that come to a head just in the last few years. Um, we have more people moving to Colorado. We have more people out on bikes for different reasons. And we know that communities across Colorado are really starting to look at, you know, how do we provide better, safer ways for people to get around um, in our cities, you know, uh, even in our rural areas. Uh, so and, you and that think means, this is a yeah, numbers means, question. Uh, that is, there are more cyclists on the road, more people perhaps commuting to work on bikes? Oh, there are definitely more people commuting um, on bikes. Uh, Downtown Denver Partnership, I know, just saw a big jump um, in their um, survey of commuter modes. I think they went from something like 8% to 25% uh, just in the last year. Um, and, you know, Colorado um, as a state actually has really higher numbers of bicycling, I think, than, uh, than the national average. That's sort of consistent. So specifically, how would this bill, Senate Bill 144, change the rules of the road for cyclists? Yeah, absolutely. The beauty of this legislation is that it is super simple. And uh, what it says is to the person on the bike, you can only go when the coast is clear. Um, And it's that predictability, I think, that is going to reduce confusion, reduce um, some of the congestion we see at intersections. Um, It allows the person on the bike to treat a stop sign as a yield sign and to treat a red light as a stop sign. Um, What it doesn't do is change any of the right-of-way rules at intersections. Uh, so really, it's it's a it's a great cost neutral policy that's going to improve road safety for people biking and driving. And why do you think it will improve safety? Sure. Um, well, we know this from a large body of evidence um, that exists. Uh, we we can see it um, here in the state with four communities that already have some safety stop laws. Uh, certainly, we see it in Idaho that's had safety stop for over a quarter of a century. I think it's thirty six years now. Uh, and the studies are really definitive, um, and they show that there are fewer crashes um, in Boise, for example. I think there's 30 to 60 percent fewer bike crashes than comparable cities um, like Bakersfield, California, like Sacramento, um, that don't have safety stop laws. And that's, I mean, if you think about that for a minute, it's pretty um, amazing. It's a, a one-third to two-thirds fewer traffic crashes um, with safety stop laws. And would this bill then uh, say that the Idaho stop is fine anywhere in Colorado? Like what what power do jurisdictions have here? What are the exceptions? Yeah, I think that's the other real beauty of this legislation um, is that communities can choose. And I think that's an important piece because we actually need to have this dialogue across Colorado, whether our traffic regulations are really producing the benefits that we want to see uh, as communities, as a society. So the the difference, I think your question was, um, you know, how does this roll out? Um, the community choice there is you can choose to adopt a safety stop law 
or not. And uh, if you do adopt safety stall, you can also choose the, the reasonable speed that you set for the person on the bike who passes through the intersection. As I said, we asked Coloradans for their input on Facebook. Layla Arano of Centennial is not in favor of the Idaho stop. She writes, as a driver, I want cyclists to obey the same laws we do. Presumably speaking as a motorist, cyclists need to be ticketed for not obeying and need to be safely uh, a part of road traffic. My car will win in a collision every single time. And if I can't see you or you're unpredictable as a cyclist, you're putting your own life in jeopardy. How do you respond? Well, there's a lot packed into that one. Um, you know, I, I think this goes back to what what are the right traffic regulations for our communities? And again, it's a community by community conversation. And we, we hear, um, you know, that notion a lot that bicyclists are probably going to be safer if they're obeying the same rules as motor vehicle traffic. And so I'm going to take on a little walk back in time um, just to maybe examine, you know, what is the role of traffic regulation in our communities to produce, you know, just norms that uh, increase safety for everybody. Um, the stop sign, I think, was invented in, in 1914, if I have that right. And, okay. you know, it was to, you know, moderate motor vehicle um, behavior. And so for a long time, I think, Bikes and um, cars were sort of lumped together with the same regulations. And, and my supposition there is that, um, you know, that was uh, hearkening back to a day when, um, you know, people on bikes really had to claim their right to actually be on the roadway. Um, you know, that I think is no longer something that's debated. Um, and so now we're at a point where we're looking at, you know, what is the safest way for bikes and cars to navigate shared space? And um, with the person in the car, I think this is the paradigm shift for for folks like your reader there, um, need to consider is that it's actually safer when the bikes are out and away from traffic. So if the bikes roll out through the intersection before the traffic arrives, they're more visible. You can see them more clearly. Um, they're just less conflicts. There are less crashes. We see that from the data in other states and also in Colorado. Um, and hopefully then we have our law enforcement officers um, out there spending those those uh, enforcement resources on reckless endangerment, um, on major infractions, and not on things like a person on a bike or a person in a car rolling through a stop sign at, say, three miles an hour. I think I'm right to say that this bill applies to streets but not highways. Is that right? Um, I think the bill is in as initially introduced, um, you know, uh, would have provided uniform language on any roadway. Okay. Um, there's currently, if I have this right, there's there's an amendment at the moment, and I know that bill sponsors are, um, you know, having that conversation now about whether that amendment makes sense. And so I'm sure we'll see some additional dialogue as it as it goes to the House in April. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the possibility of bringing the Idaho stop, as it's known, to Colorado. Here it's being dubbed the Colorado Safety Stop, but the idea is that cyclists would be able to roll through a stop sign if the coast is clear and then uh, at a stop light check to see if the intersection is clear after they've stopped and roll through if the light is red and the intersection is indeed clear. All right. Uh, we heard from Nick Massaro of Grand Junction. He bikes about 6,000 miles a year. He says motorists may not always see how difficult stops are for cyclists. Unnecessary stops can be dangerous and difficult, he says, especially for bikes loaded down with groceries, kids, or other cargo. My biggest issue is when I'm on a fully loaded touring bike because it's, uh, it's rather difficult to get that thing to lumber back up to speed. It usually has, of course, a lot of weight on it, so not to mention my own weight. 
So it, it doesn't always like to go in a straight line when it starts from a dead stop. But Massaro, who's a retired judge, says if he were in the legislature, he might not vote for the bill as it currently stands because it doesn't address liability. I would put the responsibility on the cyclist. If, they, if the cyclist decides that it's safe to go through, then the cyclist should bear the consequences of that decision, including accepting the liability that uh, might flow from a mistake. What about liability? Should that be addressed here? I have to confess, I'm not an expert on the liability question. I mean, as I listen to that, um, my thought with the language as it's written is um, that it does put the onus on the person on the bike. You can only go if the coast is clear. Um, So it's your risk assessment. Um, And if you do proceed and, uh, you know, you are proceeding into traffic, you did not yield, um, again, you can be ticketed for that. Um, to my mind, that, that makes you liable. But I don't have a legal background. And I'm right. certainly not a retired judge. So you talk about this bringing more consistency to intersections. And yet if different communities adopt d- different rules, different variations on this, and some don't at all, isn't that a lot of inconsistency throughout the state? And aren't drivers going to wonder, gosh, if I'm in Lakewood, is it something different than if I'm in Grand Junction? Sure. Well, I, I think the, the whole purpose of the legislation actually is to reduce sort of that patchworking effect because uh, we, we know that it's happening already. Um, that is, cyclists a, are doing this already. Well, we know that communities are already adopting safety stop and it doesn't all look the same. So we have Aspen, Summit County, um, Dillon and Breckenridge have all already adopted a safety stop um, and their language is not similar. Um, so if I have this right, I think in Summit County, uh, if you're a person on a bike, you're meant to yield at both a stop sign and a stoplight. But in Breckenridge, it only applies to, to stop signs. So that's a, that's a good example of some of the inconsistency that we will see if we do not adopt uniform language via this legislation. I see. You think the patchwork exists now, uh, and that's something you hope to remedy. If this bill passes with the long debate about the Idaho stop uh, I mean, would it be over or do you think it would just be starting as it's implemented in more places? Yeah, I think the debate is going to continue. And in fact, I think we're a little late in addressing this issue, which is why I'm glad to see it coming up this year. I think the uniformity in language is, is critical because more and more communities are really looking at, you know, what traffic law makes sense um, to get people around safely, to encourage healthy behaviors, to reduce crashes, um, to encourage sort of the livability that we really all enjoy here in Colorado and that brings so many visitors to our state. So it's a healthy debate. Um, and I think uh, the uniformity in the language will go a long way toward, you know, paving the way for those communities that really want to look at good policy that's going to help us increase safe, active transportation. Pete Van Heuven is the Denver Director of Bicycle Colorado. We'll take a break and then hear how much bad behavior colleges are willing to put up with from a winning coach. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Larry Eustacey resigned Monday as the men's basketball coach at Colorado State University. That's after an investigation into whether he abused his players and staff. And sadly, it's not the biggest scandal in college basketball right now, which got us thinking about how far schools are willing to go to win. Denver attorney Scott Lewis is a partner with the National Center for Higher Education Risk Management. Scott, welcome back to the program. 
Thanks, Ryan. Let's start with what went down at CSU. Uh, you, Stacey, agreed to resign after the school conducted what's called a climate assessment into allegations that he abused his players and staff. Uh, the school won't say anything more about it. I have never heard of a climate assessment. What is it? How common is it? Climate assessments are more common, but not in that arena. Climate assessments are now required for issues of sexual harassment or gender discrimination. Um, some schools will do it for race-based discrimination. But a climate assessment on how a coach is just generally treating people around the, uh, the athletics department or on their team is relatively unusual. There would be something that would have to raise the issue with the school and with the athletics department for them to want to do an internal assessment. Okay. So unusual in this case. And I imagine that involves, what, interviews with uh, athletes, staff? What, what, what is a climate assessment practically? There's two ways you can do it, um, or a hybrid of the two. One would be, like you mentioned, interviews. You would do an interview of certain staff or a lot of staff who have interaction, the players, ex-players. And then the other way you could do it is through blind surveys. You would send surveys out that students and staff could submit anonymously so they could comment and feel safe against any retribution or retaliation. This was actually CSU's second investigation of you, Stacey. A couple of years ago, the school interviewed more than a dozen players and staff about the 2013-14 season. They told stories of the coach punching and breaking dry erase boards or throwing unopened soda cans against walls. I want to be clear that there are no indications he was ever physically abusive to his players. Uh, anyhow, the then-athletic director, Jack Graham, recommended to the school administration that Eustacey be fired, uh, but university president Tony Frank decided against it. Why wouldn't a coach get fired in the face of evidence like that? That's a little unusual. The, the short answer is they're probably doing very successfully as a coach. They're winning games. And that's there's a lot of administrators who say, you know, I hired this coach to win. As long as he's not physically abusing anybody, if he's engaging in sort of the tough love practices, if you're old enough to remember the old Bobby Knight days when he would throw the chair and scream and yell, mm. That was a sort of an old school practice of just being very aggressive as a coach. And if it's successful and they're winning, some people are going to say, hey, he's doing what we asked, we asked him to do. He's winning games. We're not getting complaints. Uh, we looked into it. He's not physically abusing people. So why fire him? It is very unusual, though, for an athletics director to say, I think it's bad enough to let this coach go and then be sort of overridden by upper administration. Well, to that idea that there is a style of coaching that is, uh, you know, dramatic and bad behavior, I guess. So what? I mean, maybe that's okay, right? Or, or what is the thinking these days about that? Well, the thinking has shifted dramatically, and there's been a generational shift as well as research-based shifts. A good analogy to use, Ryan, would be 50 years ago when uh, Bear Bryant, the storied coach at University of Alabama, was coaching at Texas A&M University. Uh, he very famously took a group of guys out into the desert and, you know, ran them and didn't give them water. And they actually made a movie out of it called The Junction Boys. You know, if he would have tried that when I was there in the 80s, uh, we would have walked off the field. We didn't know, there's no way we would have been taken out in a bus. The athlete had changed. The sophistication of the athlete had changed. Coaching styles had changed. Now, in the 80s and 90s, were coaches yelling and screaming and throwing chairs and grabbing helmets and doing stuff like that? Absolutely. Breaking a dry erase board? Sure. No problem. But then 20 years later, you have, what, a new generation of athletes. These athletes have been coached. They've gone to camps. They have parents who feel differently about the way they're coached. 
And there's research out there that talks about the fact that, you know, mixing positive and negative reinforcement is far more effective with an athlete and a student than it is the constant negative yell, scream, et cetera. And so you have the athlete changing, the parents of that athlete changing, and uh, coaches changing as well. So an old school coach uh, will likely run into uh, several walls as they try to engage in this sort of old school behaviors. I wonder if uh, perhaps Tony Frank thought, well, this could serve as a warning to you, Stacey, that he might change his behavior. Is it a reasonable expectation that uh, a more old school coach might take a new path with a warning? Yeah, can the old dog learn new tricks, really? (laughs) That's the big question. Coaches are always striving to improve. They want to win. They want to do better. They want to have their young men and women that they're coaching be better young men and women. And so I would say the vast majority of them look at the research, look at the new techniques. They look at the coaches that are successful and they are saying, gosh, well, that looks, let, let's try that. You know, if I'm, I want to be on top and, and let me be clear, Ryan, will there still be the occasional, you know, yelling at a player saying, gosh, you're not trying hard enough, making them run extra laps or stairs for not following team rules. Absolutely. That stuff is still happening and will still happen. It's the level of it. And the abusiveness of it is not tolerated really any longer. Stacey got a $750,000 settlement from CSU. What I'm having a hard time understanding is that this isn't Eustacey's first go-round with trouble. I mean, he left a previous coaching stop, Iowa State, in 2003 after a picture surfaced on social media of him drinking at a fraternity party. Not acting like a great role model there. He went into an alcohol rehab program a short time after that. Part of what we're talking about is how much colleges and universities are willing to put up with, as you said, to win games and conference championships. According to reports, Nevada, which along with CSU is a member of the Mountain West Conference, got more than $1.7 million from its appearances in last year's NCAA men's basketball tournament. So how do school administrators weigh that kind of revenue versus aberrant behavior from coaches? Well, there's the revenue aspects of it. There's the prestige aspects of it. You know, there's a lot of schools that subscribe, particularly those Division One and the Power Five conference schools that say, you know, we're winning. We're getting good press. It's improving our prestige in the world of higher education, not just in the sports arena, but in other arenas. Mm-hmm. Helps us attract better students. Helps us attract better staff and faculty. So they'll commit to that. And, and to be quite frank, they'll probably put up with a little bit more. There are some clear lines that will be drawn as of recently with the you know, sexual harassment, uh, physical abuse. These are things that are clearly, when crossed, people are going to take more dramatic action. Uh, you and I spoke at one point about the situation with the Colorado Boulder uh, football coach yeah. um, that finally was dismissed. And so how much will they put up with? I think that's a, that's a cost-benefit analysis they're doing in their head. But again, it's been a shifting uh, scale as they'll put up with less even if you're doing successfully. You know, the thing that's interesting about this one is he does get a severance package. You know, it's less than the buyout of his contract. So that tells you that in all likelihood, there was kind of an agreement. This isn't acceptable. We're going to let you go. We don't want to get in a fight about this. We're going to give you something to go on your way, but we're not going to give you everything you would have gotten in a buyout. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the resignation Monday of the men's basketball coach at Colorado State University, Larry Eustacey. I'm joined by Denver attorney Scott Lewis. He's a partner with the National Center for Higher Education Risk Management. 
Uh, CSU will now be on the lookout for a replacement, and one name that has surfaced on social media is Becky Hammond, a former All-American women's player at the school. Uh, This is from a college basketball podcast, Screen the Screener. I thought this thing might be interesting to pay attention to. Becky Hammond, famous for being one of the first, the first female assistant coach in the NBA with the San Antonio Spurs under Coach Popovich. She was a coach for their summer league team as well. Becky Hammond got a letter written to him, to her, and it said, Dear Becky, Colorado State needs you. Fort Collins needs you. Moby Madness is dormant, quote, unquote. The letter goes on and says that Hammond should come back, and she should be the leader for the Colorado State program moving forward. And the letter he mentioned was written by Kevin Lytle, a reporter with the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. Uh, Scott, you're privy to the thinking of college administrators. What circumstances would it take for a school to seriously consider hiring a, a female coach uh, for a men's basketball team? How good is she as a fan and as a you know, just a watcher of the NBA, the fact that, you know, Coach Popovich, who I think said something to the effect when he hired her and somebody made some comment about, hey, you're doing a great job breaking new ground. And his comment was something to the effect of, no, I'm hiring the best coach that's out there. On one hand, you're going to have some old school thinkers that say, gosh, you know, how could a women coach men's basketball? And then on the other hand, you're going to have some people that say, who's the best coach out there? And uh, Becky certainly has proven herself at a number of levels. She is, by all accounts, a, a smart person, uh, not just in basketball, but in everything. She's worked with one of the best coaches in the history of sport, Greg Popovich. If the school wanted to not just make a statement about we're, you know, about women and the ability of women to coach men, just like men can coach women, Mm -hmm. uh, but to maybe hire a really qualified candidate, she'd certainly be on the list. As we mentioned earlier, there's a much larger scandal unfolding in college basketball. An FBI investigation includes major programs like Kentucky and Duke. And in one instance, the Bureau intercepted telephone conversations between an emissary for a sports agent and Coach Sean Miller of Arizona, which plays in the Pac-12 conference with the University of Colorado Boulder. Miller allegedly discussed paying $100,000 to ensure a star high school recruit would attend the school. There has long been the sense, often unspoken, that everybody cheats to some extent. But what's different about this? Well, we're going beyond the role of, you know, maybe sending an errant text that would violate NCAA rules or something like that. And now we're talking about straight up bribery, wire fraud. Now we're crossing into criminal action. The pressure to win and the pressure to do your best exists in every field. Everybody wants to do the best they can do. And then everybody gets pushed up against, you know, gosh, what is it going to take for me to move to that next level? What is it going to take for me to be the best I can do? When you cross that line into taking bribes or wire fraud or money laundering or things like that, uh, a choice is made. You know, with the Miller situation, uh, from what I I read, and again, I'm not privy to the interiors of that situation, but in that phone call, he basically said something to the effect of, don't go through the proper channels, only go through me, which speaks, if true, a level of not only complicity, but knowledge that he's doing something that's crossing several lines. Yeah, deceit. Um, This is not just a little bit. Absolutely. The seat and, hey, let's do this on the real DL because this could be worse than just the average violation. And we're talking about $100,000, right? This isn't a little bit of money. Do you have to blow up the NCAA and completely start over? I mean, with all that's going on here. There's certainly a lot of discussion about what the, what the NCAA do, does, what it is, what it can do. 
at the end of the day, we have to remember the NCAA is an association, and they decided when they formed that 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 group would have some enforcement capabilities, that it would have some rules of being a member of that organization, just like any other association, it's professional or otherwise. So what I think I hear you uh, pointing to is the, is the schools. This is a, what, a campus-by-campus campus issue? At, well, it's a campus-by-campus campus issue, but of course, at this point, you've got some really complex issues where the NCAA has a multi-billion dollar contract for March Madness, uh-huh. and that's with the NCAA. So could the schools all unilaterally decide, or not unilaterally, but as a group decide, you know what, we're going to scrap this association and we're going to start a new association there was talk of that with football at one point. You know, there's this back and forth as to maybe we should reform, reshape, find new leadership. In one way or another, uh, the NCAA probably is going to have to start being a little more aggressive in its enforcement, and the, group, the schools are going to have to buy into that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Denver attorney Scott Lewis is a partner with the National Center for Higher Education Risk Management. We talked about the resignation of Colorado State University men's basketball coach Larry Eustacey, as well as a recruiting scandal in the sport. Back in a moment with a visit to the new home of Denver's Kirkland Museum, a treasure trove of really cool art. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado artist Vance Kirkland used a lot of vibrant colors. His paintings looked like exploding stars. And so it's fitting that part of the Kirkland Museum's new Denver building is covered in bright yellow tiles. The architect, Jim Olson, calls this section the jewel box. He's with the Seattle firm Olson Kundig. I call it the jewel box because it's basically a container of all these precious objects. That is artwork, including thousands of pieces of decorative art, a dining room table by Frank Lloyd Wright, early fiesta wear, a dress by Andy Warhol. To me, they are jewels, and in a lot of ways, I wanted the building itself to feel a lot like a piece from the collection. The museum's new location opens to the public March 10th, but CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf got a sneak peek. If you visited the former Kirkland Museum location, you're familiar with Vance Kirkland's brick art studio. It housed his workroom, full of his supplies and the straps that he'd suspend himself from to do his work. Clearly an important feature of the museum that bears his name. So a little more than a year ago, the 150-ton building traveled 10 blocks. To Denver's Golden Triangle Creative District, the site of the museum's new and larger facility. Hi, Stephanie. I'm Maya. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Kirkland Museum of Fine and Active Art. Maya Wright is the museum's historian and my tour guide for today. There are a few final preparations going on as I arrive. Some docents practice giving tours. Workers tinker with lighting fixtures. But most of the items have been unpacked. Wright says the museum outgrew its former location. The new site has about 65% more display space. How much more of your collection are you able to display with the bigger building? We think it will be maybe about 2,000 more objects than were at the previous location. Bringing the total number somewhere between five and 6,000 objects. Down a wide hallway, I see the brick from Kirkland's studio. But Wright turns me in the opposite direction. So we're in the Vance Kirkland Gallery, and by Having this gallery, we are able to show all five of Vance Kirkland's signature painting styles all in one room. He started as a watercolorist for the first half of his career. She points to a painting of a barn. 
and um, actually won an award in school for that painting. So it's one of the earliest pieces in our collection. And then as we progress around the room, you see more watercolor and very realistic paintings than surrealism, which was his second period. Then, then there's his hard-edge abstraction paintings, his abstract expressionism works, and his signature dot paintings, in which he applied dots of paint to canvas using dowels and paintbrushes. It's a showcase of his 55-year art career that began in the 1920s. And then this painting here is actually his last finished work before his death in 1981. As it goes around the room, the earliest that you have and then the final painting end up on the exact same wall. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so nice to be able to encapsulate the breadth of his career. I mean, I think most visitors will be shocked that one man created all of these works that look very different from each other that we're able to show in one space, which we couldn't do before. Wright says with this larger building, the museum tells a more complete story of the artist. But Kirkland's work is just one of the three major collections housed at the museum. There's also artwork by Colorado artists and a treasure trove of international decorative and design pieces. For the latter, Wright says they now have the room to display this collection chronologically through six distinct galleries spanning more than 100 years of decorative art and design. Hugh Grant, our director, talks about it as time traveling through the collection from the earliest aspects of all the collections all the way through to postmodern and abstract paintings at the end. Grant founded the museum, which opened 15 years ago. Kirkland was a family friend, and when the artist died, Grant inherited his estate. Kirkland didn't own all the pieces you'll see at the museum. Wright says Grant and his former wife acquired the bulk of the collection. We do see Grant a few times during the tour. He's busy, placing some final items in their display cases. Wright says Grant has chosen exactly where every item will be shown. Hugh has hand-drawn every gallery to scale and color-coded this is the furniture layer and this is the painting layer and drawn in all of the pieces that he wanted to be on view and he's done that for the last two years. So now that most of the objects have been safely moved and unpacked by our amazing collections team, he's going through and fine-tuning. He'll literally turn a glass to face a different direction so that you see a specific element of its design in the corner. Wright takes me through some of these centrally located design galleries to show some of this painstaking work. You find collections of items everywhere. There are cases of vases, glassware, and in one gallery, delicate glass ice buckets. This larger space also allows the museum to display objects and vignettes, so you can see how they might look in real life, like this vignette in the Art Deco Gallery that displays pieces from the 1930s ocean liner, the SS Normandy. Unfortunately, it sunk in New York Harbor, but they had pulled all of the design off of it before, <laughs> before it sunk. So we're very lucky to have acquired some pieces that were on that ship, including this settee. You can just imagine a very attractive person laying across it in a seductive manner and drinking their martini. <laughs> and I should note that there is a martini glass... And then a little ashtray as well, so little details, too, to build out the scene even more. Yeah, to set the scene, exactly. So we we want you to feel like, although this was never a home, that this evokes the home that these pieces were designed for. I think many museums very understandably put the furniture up on risers or in a different setting than it was intended to be seen in. And so it's, it's a very important part of our aesthetic to show it when possible, on the floor, so you're seeing it in the scale and at the angle that you would have when it was originally designed. The final stop on the tour is Kirkland's studio. 
You can still see the room where Kirkland painted, but the studio also displays objects that were in his Denver home. There's a case full of his tableware. His living room furniture is also on view as a whole set for the first time. You get a little bit of a sense of what he lived with and some of the pieces that he used on a daily basis. So the table and lamps, I'm seeing that it's designed by Kirkland himself. Yes. So Kirkland acquired these ancient Chinese pieces that he then designed furniture to go around. So the the external wooden portions of the lamps and the table were designed by Vance Kirkland to showcase these insets that he acquired from Asia. This museum was famous for using just about every square inch in its old space. It's not like that here, but Wright says that could change. You know, this is a, a very much a, an evolving museum. So even though these displays are very intentional, I think they will change over time and will acquire new things and put them out and um, have great new ideas to share with the public. And with more than 30,000 objects in its collection, the Kirkland has lots of options for adding work to its galleries. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. You can see photos from the new space at CPR.org, plus images of moving Kirkland studio down the road. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow me at CPR Warner and the show at Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us.